Welcome to the African Tech Roundup. My name is Andile Masugu. And I'm Tefo Mohapi. If you're a regular on the show, you'll know that we usually round up the week's most important tech, digital, and innovation news from across the African continent. But this is the final week of annual leave for the entire team at the African Tech Roundup. And we'll be resuming our regular programming as of Monday, January 11th. If you have no idea what our regular show sounds like, bad on you, then you're clearly a freshman. And what you ought to do is head straight to africantechroundup.com to catch up on what you've been missing all your life. Shame, Defo, you're scolding the children on our very first episode of 2016. <laughs> I don't know what you'd be listening to if you wanted African tech news if it's not us. Ish, I, I have to agree with you, my friend. Look, over the last four weeks, though, we've been sharing exclusive content from the annual Roundup 2015 event we hosted at the Wonders Club in Johannesburg last November. Now... The event was powered by the good people at Opera Africa who are totally all about helping us all do more. With over a quarter of their 350 million or so users globally being in Africa, Opera is committed to making sure the continent is not left behind as the next billion people are brought onto the internet. And they're doing this by investing in various important ventures that seek to grow infrastructure, improve affordability and fund educational initiatives. For more information and specifics, visit opera.com. This week we're pretty excited because we round off our coverage of the annual Roundup 20. With two awesome keynote addresses. The first one is entitled Where to From Here, presented by Musa Kalenga. How fitting for the beginning of the year. <laughs> yes, yeah, set, set you up for the year, get you thinking about your plans for the year. Yes, thinking deeply. And uh, of course, Musa Kalenga is the Africa client partner at Facebook as well as head of brand at IAB South Africa. And of course, the second talk is entitled Digital African Your Ideas Matter by founder and CEO of Sisedu Kali Ilonga. By the way, if no one did anything nice for you over the festive season, shame. We've got bots lined up dying to please you. So do yourself a favor by signing up for our weekly newsletter to get the podcast sent straight to your inbox every Monday so you never miss a thing in 2016. We've also got, since no one won those Google Cardboards, just drop us a note on Twitter at African Roundup or email us at hello at africantechroundup.com and tell us why we should give you a Google Cardboard. We've got two to give away. Yes, perhaps a great way to start your year is through the lens of virtual reality. Yes! If you're keen on those Google Cardboard glasses, we've got two to give away. They weren't one last year, so might as well give us a shout and let us know why you deserve them. Of course, we're on Facebook as well. You can give us a shout on there. Facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup is where you'll find us. And now with all that said, it's time to roll the tape on these two awesome speakers, Musa Kalenga and Kali Ilunga. Wow, such a such a generous introduction. Well, why not? <laughs> well, why not? Oh, fantastic, fantastic. Good to be here with all of you today. Um, I've been sitting quietly in the back, just observing what's been happening, trying to comment as little as possible. Um, but it's been a really robust and, 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 and quite insightful discussion. Um, where, what I wanted to do today is just take a bit of a step back and have a moment of reflection. Um, reflection for two reasons. Um, you know, the, the discussions and the conversations around tech and digital um, sometimes get quite heated and you can get quite deep. Um, and it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing at all. Um, but what is often important is to take one step back and just look at the bigger picture. Um, I think the view from the top sometimes helps to give a bit of orientation to what's going on. But more importantly, it helps us to contextualize the kind of things that need to be done. A person that you'll be hearing for quite a lot during my presentations, my favorite futurist, his name's Alvin Toffler, and he speaks about change being the process 
by which the future invades our lives. Now, I've got a, I've got a two-year-old son. He's turning three in four weeks. Um, and what's been phenomenal to see this year, in fact, the last six to eight months, um, he's been going to school and he's been interacting with obviously lots of other little children. Um, and he comes home and he's got lots of new vocabulary. And this vocabulary for me is frightening because, you know, when you travel for two weeks and you come back um, and you scold your son and he says to you, it's my life, and he's two years old, um, you start to you know, get a bit of a fright. And then when you have a conversation with him to understand exactly, you know, who told him it's his life. And he said, well, uh, my teacher told me it's my life and my friends say it's my life. Therefore, it is my life. And I said to him, well, I, 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 kind of, I can't fight with you there. But at the same time, I gave you life. Um, and then you take a step back and you realize that you're uttering the words that your father used to say to you a very long time ago. So the more things change, um, actually the way they stay the same is quite important and quite um, uh, critical in understanding how businesses play a role in the future. And unfortunately or fortunately, the reality is um, that things will continue to change. And as I was leaving my office about two days ago, I took a picture of a poster driving up the driveway in my office, not too far, fortunately. Um, and it said, Travail, um, she's a nomadic worker. And essentially, this is all about the principle that you don't only need to be you know, attached by the hip to a desk to add value, and you can pretty much sit anywhere. And it's the democratization of the work environment. And this is not a new thing. It happens you know, everywhere in the world. It's happening everywhere in Africa. But what was interesting about it is I thought to myself, you know, once again, Casting my thoughts back on if I was having this conversation with my parents when I finished varsity and I said to them, uh, or they asked me, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, well, dad, mom, I want to be a nomadic worker, right? And I thought to myself, that would be a very interesting question because two things would have happened. Number one, my father would have given me a five-finger reminder, uncapped reminder, that he'd invested a lot of money in my education and I couldn't just go out there and do things like nomadic work because it didn't make sense, they didn't understand it. The second thing is my mother might have thought, you know, that sounds too close to domestic. So she might have been worried that I was throwing away the invested time, energy, um, and all the love they've given me to get to a point where I was able to add value and be productive. And, you know, and to African parents, that means doctor or lawyer. Um, but it's changed. Um, the world of work now accepts the fact that this principle of nomadic work actually means that you are out there doing something that makes sense in the bigger scheme of things. Things continue to change. And I looked at our business uh, being Facebook. 12 months ago, we took a snapshot of our, of our, uh, of our video views um, that happened on our platform. And 12 months ago, we were sitting at about 700 million video views on Facebook um, per day. Uh, the incumbent was sitting at about 15.7 billion. Fast forward to 12 months later, we've you know, subsequently passed them. We're sitting at about 12.3 billion, and they're about 11.3 billion. And this happened in an 11-month window. Um, the last count, which was about two and a half weeks ago, our daily video view rate is now 8 billion views, which has doubled in the last quarter. And I think to myself, you know, if you were sitting at this particular point in time in June 2013, would you have even understood or known that that was going to change? But our business is impacted by exactly those changes. What's even more important is as things continue to change, we understand that habits are changing. If you look at the time spent on mobile phones, if you look at the time spent of tablets and the time spent of laptops, and you aggregate that, it's about 316 minutes. You stack that up against what's our traditional platforms being television, and you see that it's almost double the amount of time that the consumers that are so important to us are spending on these new devices. What they're doing on those devices? The Lord knows. But what we do know is that 69% of those people are only on one device at a time, and 31% and growing at about a 15% rate um, are on more than one device. Now, this is not a new thing. I'm in a room full of techies. I'm sure you all sit at home and you're on your phone, on your laptop, and you're sending emails at the same time on potentially a desktop or, a, or an iPad. Um, but multi-screen multi viewing is something that's become a reality, but it's an important thing to understand because this is a starkly different position to where consumers were a while ago. 
And the reality is that now engaging consumers has become that much more difficult. And because it's become uh, more difficult, um, there are certain things that are always going to continue to change, like the business environment. I took a snapshot of globally listed public internet companies in America in 1995, and that was the list, 1 to 15. The top five you may recognize or may not. The top five, Netscape, Apple, Axel Springer, Renpath, and Web.com. You might recognize one, maybe two. Um, and these were the publicly listed internet companies that were pitted to change the world. They were the guys that were the juggernauts of industry at the time. They were the guys that were going to be the ones you're going to be reading about in Forbes a few years later. Fast forward uh, to 2015. A starkly different picture painted in the top five positions. At the top, you've got Apple, you've got Google, Alibaba, Facebook, and Amazon. In the space of 20 years, juggernauts of industry have completely moved out of that spot, and you're now replaced with the likes of Apple, Google, Alibaba, and Facebook. And what happens in that period? You know, what happens in the period where companies at the top of their game lose sight of what's important and fall to the wayside? Some people attest that, you know, Apple being at the top in 2015. Some people attest that to leadership. You know, the absolute and brutal focus on the fact that you need to make a difference in people's lives. Some people say it's balance sheet, but then you say 20 years earlier, you know, it was much of a muchness. But the important thing is I think the ones that are at the top completely and wholly embraced the fact and the reality that the environment was going to continue to change. Socrates quite, uh, quite succinctly kind of pens a pr an approach that kind of helps you to understand what, su what surviving change is about. And he says, the secret to change is to focus all of your energy, not on fighting the old, but on embracing the new. And it makes me think of a, you know, an experience I had down in Cape Town with my wife a few weeks, not a few weeks, a few months ago. Um, and we had, uh, you know, we had booked an Uber, we went to the waterfront, um, we had spent the whole day shopping, as one does when they're with their wife in Cape Town. Um, and uh, after kind of the whole afternoon of retail therapy and selfies to try and show her which outfit worked and the rest of it, my battery died. Um, come 5 o'clock, I was trying to figure out how we were going to get home. And what's weird about technology is you become so reliant on it that when your battery dies, you kind of have a moment where you're like, what, hap <laughs> what happens now? Um, not forgetting that a few years later, earlier, that you coped very well without the device. But then I, you know, I snapped out of it and I thought, okay, people generally can go outside and hail a cab or you know, get a taxi or whatever it is. So I walked outside the waterfront quite sheepishly and I put my head out and I found a row of cabs that stands right there by the you know, really expensive vehicles. Um, and I went to the lady at the front, quite a robust lady, and I said to her, we'd like to get back to where we came from. And she said, well, um, that's no problem. You, know, you can get in my cab and I'll drop you off. We got into the cab, my wife and I, um, and we were driving. And I was very impressed because there was a, a box thing on the back of the, uh, the, the, the seat. And it had a card swiping machine. I thought, wow, this is impressive. It was owned by Nedbank, so I a little mini air punch. Um, and I said to her, oh, we can pay for this cab ride with my, with my card. And she slammed on the brakes, and she was like, what do you mean? And I said, well, there's a, there's a card machine on the back of Can I pay for mine? And she was like, absolutely not. And I said, well, in my mind, I thought, what's the point of this thing? And I said to her, well, you know, okay, well, what are we going to do? I only have a card. She then says, okay, we have to go to the ATM. So I said, oh, on, whose, on whose kilometers are we going to the ATM? And obviously she looked at me and she goes, well, if that's not the case, I'm dropping you off here. So I said, well, let's go to the ATM. Drove to the ATM, put in my card, drew the money, got back in the car, five kilometers off course. We're now headed back to where we were staying. On the way, she then turns around and she asks me an interesting question. She says to me, how did you get to the waterfront in the first place? I said to her, well, I used an Uber. She slammed on the brakes again, and I was like, what's wrong with this woman? She turned around, and she, like her eyes rolled back in her head. She developed these fangs, and she started saying to me, you people are stealing jobs from us. You people are taking food out of my children's mouths. You people are the reason we can't survive. And I sat at the back of this car, and I thought, wow, this woman is spitting vitriol at me, and I'm sitting in the back of her cab giving her money. 
and it just, for me, it reinforced the fact that a lot of people spend their time fighting, <laughs> you know, the thing that's going to change. Instead of just embracing the fact that there's a new technology and a new way of doing things and capitalizing on it. And I think the important conversation about today and, capital and picking up on, and on Kojo's thought is that what we need to do is solve for value and problems as opposed to kind of get fixated on technology. Um, and why that kind of separates those who understand how it works and those who don't is that Africa is a place that is not going to be standing still for a long time. It's changing. A lot of you would have known and you know, everybody has noticed that the media narrative over the last couple of years has changed. It started out as, you know, woe is me, poor Africa, the place you send um, your expats to go and retire or to try the last time to make it work. Um, poor Africa, the place that needs a, he a heads up all the time. And it was just a hopeless continent. Um, and what the interesting thing is when we start to see other measures start to change. And you look at the IMF and they give us an indication of the fastest growing economies in the world. Between 2005 and 2010, six African countries made that list. On that list, we had Angola, we had Nigeria, Ethiopia, Chad, Mozambique, and Rwanda, who were all pitted to be African economies that were growing at a rate that was consummate to, to any other emerging economy um, in the world. Things started to change. Then we look at the numbers between 2011 and 2015, and the exciting thing is that there are now seven African countries, and of the, the seventh one is Airplanch, Zambia, where I was born. But what that starts to tell you is that the rate of growth, the GDP growth in those countries is now saying, people, you need to give us a very, very different second look. And the very different second look means like in those environments, there are opportunities which we need to unpack. They're not technology opportunities. They're not health opportunities. They're opportunities. And unlocking those opportunities is going to require us to do something very different. And the very different comes through a narrative that then changes and speaks to the fact that Africa is now rising. Africa is now the place of opportunity, of prosperity, where you need to go. Nigeria is land of milk and honey, complex, but land of milk and honey. And it starts to speak to a very different thought around what's possible within our continent. Sometimes that irritates me, but I think the big picture is we need to understand that that change is happening. And whether or not we're aware of it, it's going to hit us on the forehead like a ship in the night um, if we're not able to figure out how to add value in our context. We understand that the internet has changed everything, and I don't need to preach to you, you are the converted. Um, the internet numbers are astounding, and they're growing at a phenomenal rate. In 1995, 35 million users, we're now looking at in excess of 3 billion, that's an old stat. And then 3 billion starts to liberate the fact that internet now provides opportunities for these small places that were once forgotten, once not on anybody's radar, but to being central to people's strategy. And because engaging consumers is so much more difficult now, you have to take a snapshot of every single industry and understand where you're going to add value. And they took a little bit of a poll in the States, and they said, you know, if we look at internet and we look at impact, what are the industries that have been impacted by the advent of technology and internet? And the phenomenal thing is, is you look at consumer right at the top. To date, consumer industries have been entirely and wholly impacted by the advent of technology. Why? Because consumers adopt technology faster than any organization and company could. And that's impacting them the most. You look at business, you look at security, you look at education, healthcare, government policy. Across the board, there's an impact to a degree. And the question is, what value are we adding in each and every one of those sectors to be able to address the particular impact? And that's going to lead to prosperity for us, but solve problems for Africans. And if you look at a very, uh, sorry, if you look at a very simple um, image that I took, I was, I was in Lagos very recently, 
Um, and if you look at the fast food industry, and Lagos is the kind of place that is overpopulated, it's the kind of place where traffic doesn't work, where things don't happen, but even within that, someone sees an opportunity to say, if people can't go to food, and I like the comment Mitch was making earlier, um, they said, why don't we get on a, on, a, on a motorbike, which is the fastest way to deliver things, and why don't we take food to them? Why don't we do this through a, an automated platform, and why don't we make that easier? Um, because it is one sector that may not necessarily be the sexiest, street food, um, but at the same time, it still presents a problem um, that requires us to be able to create a solution. And that's important. And a lot of people ask the question, how do you survive the changes? How do you survive the things um, that are going to be kind of our reality tomorrow, but at the same time, create a business that's scalable in the long run? And there's a quite a simple model that I wanted to just kind of show you very quickly. And it's got four very easy and kind of palatable steps, but it's one of those models that continues to reinvent itself. And it's simple. It moves away from industry and it says, in every single sector, there's what we call a dominant way of doing things. There's a dominant system. There's a logic that says, this is how we bake pancakes. There's a Krispy Kreme has recently come to South Africa. This is how we make cream donuts. Um, this is how we do what we need to do. McDonald's have become very good because they created a dominant system. You go to the school of McDonald's and you get a McDonald's degree, and therefore you'll be able to make patties in a particular way for the rest of your life. That's a dominant system. What we need to do is we need to identify dominant systems. Was I clicking? Hello. Okay, great. What we need to do is we need to, we need to identify those dominant systems. And in those dominant systems, we need to create the alternative. Right? In every system that has been around for a long time, the only reason it's there is to manage risk, to make sure you can scale, and to be able to give your shareholders um, peace, of, uh, peace of mind when they go to sleep at night. But when you create an alternative system, you have to develop and organize a very different set of skills. A very different set of skills that's able to solve the problem that you've identified. And last but not least, you start to shift culture by understanding those four steps. What is interesting is you can take any of the really sexy tech companies that are being implemented all over the world, be it Uber, be it Alibaba, Facebook, or Airbnb, and all of them followed exactly the same logic in being able to solve whatever problem they identified. The interesting thing is when you look at shifting culture, I was listening to an interview on 702 the other day, an unintended consequence of solving problems is that sometimes you start to shift culture in a way that it will never be the same again. Uber, being kind of a high-growth tech company, as they call it. Um, but having deployed their technology in the U.S. first, they've reached a point of saturation where one of the major decisions that kind of hotel chains, clubs, um, and kind of really high-end um, cosmopolitan entertainment spots, um, one of the decisions that they used to make around location was, is there enough parking? Because people drive fancy cars, they want to come park their cars, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, shifting culture means that today, when they make those decisions, they don't worry about parking. Um, they make those decisions based on the fact that we need to get best location, parking is irrelevant because the culture around how people get to where they need to go has changed. Um, so being able to shift means that there's unintended consequences which you need to understand. Some of, them hit them on the, some of them hit you on the forehead, but some of them can create new business opportunities, which we also need to be in a position uh, to capitalize on. And the unfortunate thing is that some things also shouldn't change. Um, when we look at Africans and our love of chicken, um, you know, those things don't go away. It's a very cute cartoon that says, Web 2.0 changed everything. And this chicken says, seriously, how come they still make fajitas after us? Because, you know, some things don't change. Chicken is chicken. Um, you know, even if you're not African, some other people like chicken. This is a great one. White, black, man, woman, straight, gay, Catholic, Muslim, American, all taste like chicken. And that's a bear. <laughs> so I thought I'd just throw that in there. But some things shouldn't change, and some things will never change. Because if you look at things like how people absorb information, um, we all know that the best way to get information that is credible is from someone you trust and from a source that is most credible. And if we still look at the way young people are consuming information, the top of that is still Facebook. Why? Because Facebook gives you the credibility 
that says that this information is not coming from an organization, it's coming from a person. So some things just won't change. And the reality about the things that won't change is that's exactly where you look for the opportunity. And if we look at things that have to change, you know, to the barefoot man, happiness is just simply having a pair of shoes. To the man who has a pair of shoes, his happiness is having a very stylish pair of shoes. The person who actually doesn't have any legs, to them happiness is having a foot. Um, and to the person um, that's got a foot, you need to just understand that for them, that is the epitome of happiness. So to measure what you need to do, you need to be able to understand the contextual challenge that that human being is facing. That problem that you're going to solve is going to be exactly what it is that's going to enable you to either use technology or just a simple thing to address that challenge. In so doing, I think creativity is central to what we all have to grapple with. Creativity gives us the ability to unlock um, the opportunities. And the really clever guy called Albert Einstein says, creativity is simply just intelligence having fun. Um, have you ever noticed when you become good at something, it becomes more fun? Because you've reached a level of IQ or mastery that makes it more, um, more enjoyable. And through creativity, I wanted to give you a quick, you know, quick last example. This book called Creative Confidence, um, written by a guy called uh, Tom Kelly and his brother David Kelly, speaks about these three quadrants, visibility, I mean viability, feasibility, and desirability. And at the center of that, they speak about innovation. And those important three quadrants means that your business needs to appeal to a human being before it can actually make any sense. Um, part of our strategy for commercialization as a, as a company like Facebook is will people use this technology before you try and commercialize it? Um, and at the center of that is where real innovation comes from. A simple example that comes out of their book is this particular machine. Um, an MRI scan machine was developed by a very clever professor. And it was an MRI machine that was going to be changing the world. It was going to kind of revolutionize MRI scanning technology. And the guy who created it went to the, ho the hospital that ordered the first one. He sat um, in, the, in, the, in the lobby and he watched as people interacted with the machine. He sat and he watched the family walk through and, you know, there's a little boy uh, and his mother and his father. And as he watched them walk in the room, he noticed that the boy was quite hysterical. He was crying, he was sobbing. Um, and he looked and he thought, well, that's interesting, but he said nothing. And as they walked in, they went straight through and they got into the doctor's room. And after the appointment, he went back into the doctor's room and he said, well, that kid was crying. Why did he, you know, what was the issue? Why was he crying as much? He said, look, kids are very kind of, off, uh, they, they find it quite scary to come into a machine. They don't like doctor's visits. Um, it's quite a daunting thing for them. And this actually bothered the guy who invented this machine went back into the process and he said, how do I apply creativity to solve a business problem? How do I add further value to that little boy and many other little boys like them that will have the same reaction? The interesting thing that came out of that process is they did something quite simple. They painted the machine. They painted it the color of a, of a, of a pirate ship. To that, they added a narrative. So each and every of the, one of the operators within the hospital had to go through the narrative. So now the boy would come into the hospital and they'd say, shh, the pirates are going to get you. So you have to keep quiet. When we go on the pirate ship, you have to keep still because if you make noise and you ruffle around, the pirates will come and get you. Now, MRI machines have higher results if you lay still in the machine, whereas kids used to go in there and fuss around and be uncomfortable. Um, so what happened as a result of applying creativity to that problem um, is they saw the, a the accuracy, the readings of the machine go up, um, but more importantly, kids started asking to come into this machine because you solved the problem for them. It became an experience. It was fun for them to do. Last but not least, I think the way that we should be thinking about in uh, technology impacting our lives is quite simple. Um, and once again, this is usually a 45-minute keynote, so I'm going to summarize quite quickly. Um, and the way we should be thinking about it is in two ways. There are things that don't change. And I believe those things are our abilities to be humans, our abilities to understand, to empathize, to sympathize, um, to look at someone in a bad situation and to figure out that you can help them. And then there are things that will always change. 
which is technology, which is the external environment, which is those things you have zero control over. And at the center of that, as people that are creating and adding value in the new African context, if you understand those two things, it's going to help you to be able to build better businesses um, no matter what sector they're in. Last but not least, my favorite futurist once again, he says, for all of us that are grappling with this problem, we need to be assured by one thing. And that thing is that illiteracy in the 21st century is not about those who cannot read and write. Illiteracy in the 21st century is about those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. And that means that we should keep testing our assumptions and hold everything that we know and that we have in our heads very lightly because things change at quite a rapid rate. So thank you very much for your, for your time. I'm going to now hand over to my good friend, Kali, who's going to speak a little bit about ideas, innovation, and disruption, and exactly how that fits into the bigger picture. Thank you, sir. This is actually, yeah, yeah, one of the most insightful people I know. I'm constantly calling him for advice. Whilst this is firing up, let's get going. So um, let me start with the story. So 29 years ago, um, a telegram goes out from my Ghanaian mother to my Congolese dad. It says, um, baby boy born, stop. Um, arriving in three days, stop. Pick us, up as Pick us up at airport, stop. So three days later, me and my mom arrive at this Congolese airport. And um, <laughs> there you go. So three days later, we arrive at this Congolese airport, and there's no dad to be found. And actually, the telegram came three months later. And who would have thought that kid they're talking about in that telegram would be part of the pioneer generation of digital Africans? Now, it's, it's, such a, it's always an honor speaking to people who actually do stuff in tech and look for innovation. It's also an honor to be speaking to whoever's out there online or on YouTube watching this tape because you guys are digital Africans. But my charge to you is to do more. I don't care what you're doing, do more. Here's the reason that I don't care, even as a digital African, that up to 300 million smartphones are going to come and flood the continent. I don't care. And I'm going to talk to you this entire reason about why. And it's because of ideas. Let me first start off by telling you what kind of person you are. And I know it's kind of presumptuous, but John Hunt in his book, The Art of Ideas, says, whether you're at a wedding, whether you're a funeral, whether in a room like this, you're either a sunriser who's like, hey, why don't we just build an app for all the Nigerian street guys on that street, and then I can go on the map, and, you know, they're mish. And then idea number two, uh, sunriser number two is like, I love that. And then you can actually add that to menus and swipe so that they can deliver it. And then sunriser number three is going crazy. And sunsetters are the exact opposite. Sunsetters are like... What Xcode is that report to you? Why would you do that in Nigeria? What about corruption? What about data access? What about... But the thing is, we both need each other. The worst thing a sunrise can do is tell the sunset's idea too quickly, but the sunsetter reigns it in. But I want to be able to share why ideas matter. And I want to start off with the first idea I sunrise on. So I was 21 years old. This is maybe, uh, if I say 10 years ago, hold on. Uh, it was nine years ago, <laughs> and so my left leg is shaking, and the instructor's looking at me like, dude, if you, fail the, if you hit this pole, you're going to fail again. I reverse, I hit the pole, for the fourth time that week, I failed my driver's test. And like so many ideas, in a moment of crisis, it was born, right? I was like, well, what is it? You know, what if, wait a second, what if instead of a driving school, we all had a driving school on our phone? But this is 2006, 2007, so, you know, these are the phones you're playing snake on, <laughs> and the idea was, what if we put these, you know, how you three-point turn, how you parallel park, all this stuff on a phone. Launched on the Friday. On the Monday, we had 80,000 subscribers. On the Wednesday, we had 150,000 subscribers. On the Friday, we had half a million 
South Africans on this thing. And there's a socioeconomic impact too because, you know, if you're poor and all you get is a driver's license, all of a sudden maybe you can be a truck driver. If you're a security guard earning, you know, 2,500 rand a month is the average, now you're earning 6,500 rand a month because you're a patrol guy because you've got a driver's license. And yet there's 50% failure rates and it's expensive and there's miscommunication and corruption. And that was the first time I realized that, hold on, as a digital African using readily available digital tools, my ideas matter. Digital African, your ideas matter. But they've got to matter more than just a cool story and entrepreneurial flair. They matter because of what everyone's been talking about so far. The D word, baby. Disruption. Here's a scary stat. Fortune 500 companies, their average lifespan has gone from 78 years to 18 years. I was going to give you a quick crash course on disruption. But basically, it's when a new market is, is serviced that couldn't be serviced before. So you're the first car in a world of horses. And we heard Mish earlier uh, talking about Netscape and all the stuff before that. But people often don't know why Google is disruptive. It's not because of the search and the algorithm. It's because Yahoo, before Google, was saying, hey, you've got two options if you want to advertise on the internet. You've got a $5,000 package or a $10,000 package. <laughs> and Google's like, hey, how about you pay a dollar per click? How about you, you know, they create this whole new market. And so that's not the first car in a world of horses, a major disruption. They're making something easier, more accessible, more affordable, a minor disruption. But the thing about disruption that all of us know is that the incumbents going, what the heck do I do? There's, it's a business model crisis. You can't figure out what to do to compete with this. It's not about getting better talent, better marketing. You don't know what to do. So as a sunriser, this should be freaking you out. Because we're in a continent that depends on incumbents. Here's the dark side of disruption. When you're in mining, in retail, in consumer products, and some kid in New Delhi comes up with an app that destroys your company, on the African continent, that means that our fathers and mothers and siblings are losing their jobs. The difference between a cab driver being disrupted by Uber in New York and one being disrupted in Musa's story in Cape Town is that the Uber driver in New York has some sort of social net, right? He's probably not the only educated person in his family. He's got access to quality health care. He probably could find another job. If he's really hungry, he can go get a food stamp. We don't have that social safety net on this continent. So the dark side of disruption is that in a continent with very little catch, we're free-falling. And so as a sunsetter, your only mission should be, how do I get people to sunrise more? Because you can pretend disruption won't hit our sector on our continent because we're so protected. Or you can realize there's no do not disturb sign. We are all going to get impacted by disruption one way or another. And so what does that mean? It means that digital African, your ideas matter because we need them. Because in a disruptive context, we have no choice but to innovate. This isn't about sexy brainstorms. It's about survival in a business sense, in a career sense. It's real. And so I'm going to leave that quickly. But which ideas matter? So if all of these ideas are coming at us, right, because we've got to innovate, it's our responsibility to innovate as digital Africans, how do you know the difference between which ideas you filter as good and which ones are bad? Here's a snapshot of 1982. So if you had an idea in 1982 that had anything to do with computer and office equipment, one out of 25 times you would survive beyond five years. If you had an idea that had an eating and drinking place at its core, one out of 14,550 times would you survive. That's not about marketing. That's not about cool execution. That's about the quality of the idea. So the quality of the idea matters. So in a disruptive world where all these ideas are coming at us, how do you know which ideas matter? One word, 
empathy. The thing about having a sexy app that swipes left and swipes right is that it's pretty useless if the guy in the rural Eastern Cape that you're targeting doesn't have the data to access that app because he can't afford it. Empathy is about going, not just is my product cool, what does it feel like to use it in the context of my day, in the context of my life? The problem with, you know, I, I had a chance to go to six American cities and see a bunch of startup ventures and all that stuff um, in July, and then I spent August doing the same thing um, in six African countries. Here's my irritation with American, you know, the co-working space I had. The guy next to me is like, dude, he just raised $500,000 for this, by the way. Anyway, he's like, dude, you know on WhatsApp when you send messages? Imagine you could send a message and you could pick your favorite celebrity voice. So he's like, hey, what are you doing? And, and he goes, Barack Obama, and like, Barack Obama's voice reads to me, hey, what you doing? Awesome idea, completely useless. Another guy's like, hey, on my way home, I'm going to just click this thing, and there's going to be this microbrewery I've got set up at my house. It's going to make my beer ready by the time I get home. Awesome idea, completely useless. The problem with us you know, outsourcing this tech innovation to Silicon Valley is that empathy is about recognizing someone's restraints. And they can't recognize restraints they've never seen. They care about the fact that their photo doesn't have the sexy filter. When I hear the same, I, the same, when I'm in the same co-working space in Nairobi, the lady is like, hey, imagine your internet had a generator. You know when electricity goes, I'm, I get that. I feel these, if my internet had a generator and like 20 of us could connect without electricity, I get that. That's empathetic. The other guy is like, hey, you know there's a billion dollars a year lost in mining from preventable diseases with TB and HIV? What if you could do a USSD test that tells you, hey, you probably have HIV, you probably have TB, go to this clinic that's nearest you, on SMS. Just basic technology. The thing about empathy is that it gets you away from what's fancy and what's cool and makes you think appropriately. When you think about M-Pesa, when you think about Mixit in its heyday, they're not using technology that was a miracle. They're thinking, what technology is empathetic? From San Fran to Tokyo to New York to Nairobi, the business models and the ideas that win are the ones that have empathy at their core. To Musa's point, they they put the, the human being first. And if we're not doing that, What are we doing, digital Africans? The guy in San Fran has never even heard that airtime could be a problem. You have a cousin, a friend, a sibling, someone in your community, someone you hire that does. If we, as Africans, aren't being empathetic, I can promise you that other people are far less likely to be. We need to be empathetic in a disruptive world because market shares about the market going, you get us. And we're hoping that Africans go, you get us to Silicon Valley Innovations. They need us to come up with ideas. We need to do more. I want to end off with um, where ideas matter. So forget that. (laughs) That's my stuff. (laughs) Where ideas matter. So we're in South Africa right now, right? Broadly viewed as sort of the promised land on the continent. Let me read a crazy stat for you. I'll read them in order. First country with high uh, death rates between 25 and 35, Syria. Number three, Afghanistan. Number four, Iraq. Number two, South Africa. We just had fees must fall. The government had something to say. Students had something to say. We as a class, the guys who've actually got a job and an education and access to Wi-Fi to expose us to ideas, we had no ideas about something that impacts our sustainability. The reason I don't give a damn about these things flooding our market in the next five years, is that if they're anything like this one, let me cover the logo. (laughs) If they're anything like any one of many smartphones, (laughs) they have cobalt in them, which is actually made in a community my father's from. The cobalt is assembled in a Chinese factory. 
that Chinese factory then delivers it. But at the back, it says, made in California. Then when they sell this thing, do you know how much my dad's community gets, according to Martin Davis? Roughly about 0.03% of the revenue that this thing makes. Digital African, your ideas matter because our raw materials don't anymore. Let me send you the last telegraph you'll ever receive, probably. Digital African, stop. Your ideas matter. Stop. You have empathy. Stop. Do more. Stop. After that, I am so pumped for 2016. We hope you enjoyed today's show as much as we did. And once again, we'd like to thank Opera for helping us do more and, and partnering with us to bring you the insights we shared today. And a special thank you to Musa Kalenga and Kali Lunga for their inspiring talks. They made a lot of sense. Sure did, man. We can't wait for the show to come back proper next week. In the meantime, folks, stay safe. Uh, make the most of this awesome new year and uh, until next week uh, that's it from me Andile Masugu and meet the for Mohapi in my bot voice I'll be back go get them <laughs> cheers guys peace out <laughs> we're so stupid <laughs>